and be able to see questions. I hope so. This episode of On The Beat is brought to you by Ingles. Shop online with Ingles Curbside Pickup. New curbside stores opening every week. Please welcome Mike Griffith. Well, hey everybody, Mike Griffith here and welcome to tonight's edition of Ingles On The Beat. And man, has there been a lot going on in the last week. I guess the Super Bowl first, right? Everybody's got their two cents, three cents. I guess I'll throw that in there. So I guess I was like everyone else, and I thought the Philadelphia Eagles would win. Obviously, a couple dogs on that team, Jordan Davis, N'Kobe Dean. The Chiefs had McCole Hardman, who did not dress, was on injured reserve, uh, as well as Malik Herring. I thought, man, the Eagles are going to win this game. And then I saw the point spread and how all the money was going on Philadelphia. And I I did like a Google search. Like 70% of the money was on the Eagles, and I thought – Man, Las Vegas is going to take a bath. And I thought, surely they must know something we don't. So they said, I think the Chiefs will win. You know, and the Chiefs did win. And I know everybody's pointing to this call in the last minute and a half, whether or not there was a defensive hold. Look, that was a defensive hold. And there were two or three other times in that game where if the officials really, really did have a rooting interest, a fumble that was not ruled a fumble, returned for a touchdown, was one. A double catch that could have easily been ruled a non-catch. So I guess I just want to throw my two cents out there that even though I thought, you know, Las Vegas, you know, couldn't take it. I thought the officiating was fine. I didn't personally think it was, you know, that bad of a call. I thought it was a good call. I thought it was the right call. And so did the Philadelphia Eagles player said, yeah, that was defensive holding. So I guess I just want to get my little Super Bowl 57 two cents out there uh, before I move on uh, to, to it's really the groundbreaking news in the Southeastern Conference, and that is expansion. And you saw last week that the SEC said that, yep, as it turns out, Texas and Oklahoma are going to be getting out of the Big 12 a year early. And to me, this is like Christmas coming early, man. I can't wait for 2024 when there's a 12-team playoff and the national championship game is played in Atlanta. I mean, you talk about being at the center of the college football universe. Atlanta's there. College Football Hall of Fame, uh, Mercedes-Benz Stadium, SEC Championship game. And now we've got a national championship game there in 2024. And, oh, by the way, Georgia starts that season playing Clemson in that building, right? Just like this year they started the year playing against uh, Oregon in that building and then ended up playing in the SEC Championship game there. How cool was that? And then Ohio State. So it's kind of cool how Atlanta has been in the middle of all this. You know, I, I grew up, you know, watching sports and SEC football. And you always heard it was Birmingham. I think Atlanta has taken over. And, man, what a great city uh, for sports. It's been outstanding. And now 2024. And now Texas and Oklahoma. Originally, their original deal, I think it's called Grant of Rights, with the Big 12 was in 2025. And you're like, well, this is kind of a mess. Because the 12-team playoff starts, but they're still in the Big 12, and the Big 12's adding these other teams, and you just somebody's got to work this out. Somebody's got to figure this thing out. 
you always follow the dollar signs. Everybody wants this to work out. It makes the most sense for the Big 12. It makes the most sense for the SEC. It makes the most sense for ESPN. So what happens next? Okay, 2024. 2023, next year, this season, is going to be special because I think it's going to be the very last ones with divisions. This will be the last time that we see divisional play. I went to the SEC spring meetings in Destin last year. Dog Nation goes there every year, and uh, we do a ton of stories from there. I don't know how many people are engaged or tuned in at the end of May, early June. It's kind of a vacation time for a lot of people, so I know that you know not all football fans are tuned in. But for me, that's when I get busy, you know, and get really the next season started because we start asking questions of the coaches uh, about their teams, kind of get a jump on SEC media days. It's almost like a pre-SEC media day function. You guys know SEC media days is July. This is like a head start. Plus, you get to talk to the athletic directors and some presidents. Remember last year, Jerry Moorhead went on Paul Feinbaum? I mean, talk about two ends of the universe. And I really applauded Moorhead for going on Feinbaum and answering a lot of tough questions. Really showed a lot of leadership to me. And um, Kirby Smart might be influencing the president there because he had some swag and he had some answers and he was bold. You know, he was a part of this NCAA executive committee that's trying to get these rules in place and corral the NIL. And I just didn't know that the Georgia president, Jerry Moorhead, had it in him until I watched him go toe to toe with Paul Feinbaum in Destin, Florida on live TV. I said, wow, this is incredible. I don't know what the stage is going to be this year. Uh, I, you know, remember also last year we had the whole Jimbo Fisher, Nick Saban feud, right? That had just kind of carried into that. And we were talking to Nick about it and Jimbo about it. I don't know what the wild storylines are going to be this year outside of expansion. There's a chance that the new schedule model and the new divisional, non-divisional model will be settled. And you might say, well, what are you talking about? Okay, we're going from 12 to 14 teams. How is the SEC going to schedule this now that you've got Texas and Oklahoma if there's no divisions, right? The way things are right now, you've got two teams in a seven, uh, seven east and seven west, and you play six teams against your division rivals, right? And then you play your one crossover annual uh, rival, which for Georgia has been Auburn, and then they've had like one other team rotating. Like next year, Ole Miss comes into Sanford Stadium. Well, now moving forward, there's been two models last year that kind of came out of the talks. They didn't settle on a new model because they weren't sure when the 12-team playoff would happen or when Texas and Oklahoma would join. But now those pieces are in place. And the two different models they looked at, one was for an eight-game schedule, and one was if the SEC decides to go up to a nine-game schedule. Well, I'm pretty confident they're going to go up to a nine-game schedule. And the reason why is money. Right now, the Big Ten television package is worth significantly more than the SEC television package. When Texas and Oklahoma join, yes, that's going to make the SEC package more attractive. But if you add that ninth game, now you're talking about a package that could be on equal footing with the Big Ten, which plays nine conference games. And why is that important? People going, oh, money, I'm so tired of money deciding everything. Well, here's why. Because that money that the, that the uh, conference distributes to each school is what helps pay your coaching staff. 
It's what helps upgrade your facilities. And not just football. There's a real trickle-down effect here. And this is where Georgia's a big winner because Georgia needs money. Georgia's not broke, but Georgia is behind other schools that they compete with in non-football facilities. I'm not going to get into Stegman Coliseum and basketball tonight. I think it's a, a an intimate environment. I think it's a comfortable, cozy environment. It is one of the smaller arenas. I believe it's the second smallest arena in terms of attendance in the league. Um, but that's not a problem. I don't think it's nearly uh, you know as posh or up-to-date as other basketball arenas. But for now, that, that's not where I want this to go. I look at baseball facility. I look at softball facility. To me, because of the recruiting base that Georgia has in baseball and softball, these are programs that if the facilities can be brought into the top 25% of the SEC, the top four or five, these are programs that will be perennial national championship contenders. And you might say, well, they already are. Softball certainly is. They've done an amazing job, and they're really good this year, too. But baseball, not so much. You know, it's been a minute since the dogs got out of regional. I want to say maybe 2009. And Scott Strickland is a great coach, but he's really up against it. And I think the money that trickles down into baseball and into softball facilities improving is going to really raise Georgia's stature in spring sports. You know, those are TV games. And I think that that's like a commercial when you're playing a TV sport. To me, I put a little bit more emphasis on that. Just me personally, as a guy that's covered college sports for over 30 years, if it's a TV sport, it's kind of more important than other maybe non-revenue sports that aren't on TV. Now, some people might argue that and, and point out that the Olympic sports are also fantastic because they produce future Olympians. I know Georgia swimming is, is fantastic. I know Georgia gymnastics for some time was the best in the nation. I know Georgia track and field certainly has some of the best athletes. I think about Matthew Bowling and, and how that kid is worth going out and watching and how sensational he is. Think about Georgia tennis and how they used to hold NCAA tournaments in Athens. And now that they've upgraded their facility, I believe it was some 30, 35 million, they're going to be able to hold NCAA tournaments in Athens again. There's a lot of really cool sports that Georgia had kind of been competitive at for a long time. But baseball and softball, to me, are the next programs that need to take that jump. And that's why this money coming a year earlier makes Georgia a big winner. I talked to Josh Brooks about this the other day. They had their annual meetings last week, and it was revealed that, you know what, baseball is moving forward, but it's a two-year plan and not a one-year plan. And this is something that's been delayed, delayed, and delayed. COVID, now construction costs, interest rates, and Georgia fiscally has been one of the more conservative programs in the SEC in terms of how they manage their money and the amount of reserve money they have on hand. And I know that's been a point of contention for Georgia fans, certainly where football was concerned for years and years. And everyone talks about how Jeremy Pruitt raised the stink. And if it wasn't for Jeremy, it wouldn't have gotten done. And Jeremy says, well, I don't know about that, but I probably said some things in a way I should. You guys saw Jeremy on the program all year. Um, I'm just not sure that Georgia is going to be aggressive enough to get caught up fast enough with other programs in, in uh, baseball and softball. And these are programs that I'd like to see grow. Football, it's fine. Kirby is going to get whatever he wants. He should. 
Other programs root for Georgia football. They understand the importance of football. It's what really gets kids to come on visits, uh, certainly helps out the enrollment. It certainly raised the profile of the University of Georgia, which was also which was already very positive. But as now someone who's covered this program for five years, I look around the SEC and I see other programs that are ahead. Now, to Josh's point, Georgia can't have the best facilities and everything. And I'm kind of picking and choosing when I say, well, you know, Tennessee's better than that and Mississippi's better. But I guess I've covered Georgia long enough now and kind of bought into this whole Kirby Smart mentality where I think to myself, why can't Georgia have equal facilities to Florida in everything or Tennessee in everything? Not just football, but everything. And, and that's kind of the two programs that I measure Georgia against. And the reason why is because when I covered Tennessee, Tennessee said they measured themselves against Georgia, Florida, and Alabama. Those were the three programs that Tennessee measured. Who does Georgia measure themselves against? I think Florida and Tennessee are the two primary programs. Football-wise, Alabama, especially now that Kirby's kind of derailed the Saban dynasty. But facilities-wise, I don't see any reason why Georgia shouldn't be on par with Tennessee and Florida. And this is where the catch-up has to happen. And I know Brooks is working hard over there. He didn't inherit a perfect scenario with facilities. They've got a very responsible fiscal plan. Think about how valuable that was during COVID when other programs were laying off employees and asking them to take pay cuts. Georgia didn't lay off anybody. Nothing changed. They had that reserve in place because of that strategy. But I think we're in an era now moving ahead with the larger television contract and now adding Texas and Oklahoma. And you know these are two other programs that are going to recruit against Georgia for national players. I mean, look at Arch Manning. He ended up at Texas. I think Oklahoma will be back. The Sooners are kind of down this year, but I think Oklahoma is going to be back. And they're going to compete with Georgia for players that are going to be out west, that Georgia has started to go out west to get, or in Texas that Georgia has started to get. So to me, this can't come fast enough. So nine-game schedule, more money, trickle-down effect. I don't think there's going to be divisions or pods. I think it's going to be just one 14-member standing. Top two teams play in the SEC championship game. Now, the schedule models. In a nine-game schedule model, they were looking at something they called the 3-6. And the 3-6 is that every team plays the same three opponents every year and then rotates six. The whole idea and the whole concept, Greg Sankey told us, was for more teams to play each other more often. And he pointed out there's still some teams that haven't played at other teams in the other division. And Georgia fans can tell you, all together now, haven't been to Texas A&M. AM joined the league 12 years ago, and Georgia has still not played a game in College Station and is not scheduled to play a game in College Station until 2024, the magical year, right? Texas AM played in Sanford Stadium in 2019, by the way, and Georgia won that game. I can tell you from being, uh, having gone to Texas AM, it's it's a big, nice, shiny stadium but I wouldn't put it in my top five destination locations in the SEC. But yes, for the Georgia fans who travel everywhere, they're going to want to check that off. 
And um, it, it's a good place to watch a game, but it's not in the top five in the SEC, in my opinion. So then the question becomes, well, who are the three teams that Georgia would play every year? And Alabama would play every year. And Tennessee and play. Well, this is where it gets tricky. Everybody says, can we have Vanderbilt every year? No, not everybody can play Vanderbilt every year and go to Nashville every other season and have a big party and take over the stadium. Only three lucky teams will draw Vanderbilt. In all seriousness, I think number one, first and foremost, Florida. I don't think there's any doubt. I don't think anyone needs to worry. Florida Gators will be on Georgia's schedule every single year, no matter what the schedule model is. Yes, there's a possibility that Georgia will play their future home games with the Gators in Athens because now you're playing this nine-game schedule or some game, some years you'll have five on the road and four at home and vice versa. Georgia's also scheduled very aggressively out of conference with home and homes, very good programs, and Georgia has shown no signs of changing their agreement with Georgia Tech. I think that will remain a home and home. Thus, you've got to get that game back in Athens because you've got to take care of your season ticket holders. And Kirby wants it there. Let's face it. Kirby's waited seven years. He's won two national titles. Give the man what he wants. He's done enough. I mean, I can't believe I just said that. Did you hear that? Georgia's won two national titles. Do you ever just wake up and go, wait a minute. This was the program everybody said 40 years about. No, no. Two national titles in a row. Who else has done that in the college football playoff era? Nobody. Nobody. Alabama won two, was it 10 and 11, before there was a 14 playoff? I think Nebraska won two in a row in the 90s. And now dogs are going three-peat? Okay, that was just a sidebar. Getting back to the three teams. Yes, Florida, number one. This is where it gets controversial. Because some people say, well, it's got to be Auburn. It's the oldest rivalry in the South. Well, yes, but Auburn also plays Alabama. And you know they're not giving that up. So do you really think Auburn wants to play Alabama and Georgia every year? I don't think so. And I'm not convinced that it's going to be Auburn. Maybe, maybe because they like to recruit Georgia, maybe. What about South Carolina? People say, they're not a rival. South Carolina thinks you are. South Carolina thinks of Georgia as their biggest SEC rival, and Georgia recruits the Carolinas. And proximity-wise, I believe it may be the – is it the closest SEC school to Georgia? Columbia? I think it might be. So from a proximity standpoint, and then there's Tennessee. It's a border state. Now, I'm not convinced, though, that Tennessee really wants Georgia every year because Tennessee already plays Alabama every year, and they got some diehard folks that do not want to give up Alabama. I think Tennessee will gladly give up Florida. It's really not that close. And it really isn't the robbery it once was. I'm not sure we're going to see Tennessee as an annual opponent. I personally would like to see it because I think it's a great rivalry. And I think it's, like I said, I just, I like the color and the pageantry. And I know that it kind of gets Kirby going. That's a team he never beat as a player. And he just seems so emotional for Tennessee. It's just, he gets fired up for that. Um, So I guess I would guess, I would guess Florida, South Carolina, and either Auburn or Tennessee. I'm just not sure which one. So put your comments in there, what you think they're going to do. 
some people have thrown Kentucky out there. Like, why? Like, I don't – do you really want to see Kentucky every year if you're I, – I, the trip is Lexington, cold, November. No, no. Go – Kentucky can have Tennessee and Vanderbilt and, and Missouri or somebody or somebody. I just don't think of Georgia and Kentucky even being in the vicinity of a football robbery. Georgia's given them chances. Kentucky's had opportunities to be good and, and do something with the East, and they just – it never, it never happens. So those are kind of some of my thoughts. I want to take a halftime break now. I want to recognize the Eagles. When we come back, I want to talk about the NFL draft, uh, some projections, and a couple of stories that I've done on Stetson Bennett uh, the last couple of days, talking to DJ Shockley about him, talking to Jake Fromm, hearing what Urban Meyer and Jim Donnan had to say. So stay with us, but right now, let's take our halftime break and recognize our sponsor, Ingles. Did you know that Ingles sells more organics than any other store, or that they run their own dairy, or that they only serve USDA choice and prime meat? Did you know that they have more local craft beer than any place else, or that they have energy smart stores, or that they professionally slice and package imported cheese from Europe? Did you know about their giant international aisle, local farm partnerships, curbside pickup, wine department, or that they donate 3,956 meals a day to local food banks? Well, now you do. It's all in the bag. Ingles, low prices, love the savings. Well, welcome back to the show. Just kind of plugging in my computer here. We've got so much energy burning, so much electricity in the show tonight that my batteries are running low on my laptop and I need to plug it in. Keep this program going, man. We got to keep this program alive. Looking at these mock drafts right now, now that the Super Bowl is over, I think all the attention turns to the NFL draft. And you guys know I was at the Senior Bowl. You know, remember last week I was all decked out in all that Senior Bowl garb. Uh, I bought the top the year before. The hat was like a giveaway this year. Uh, I don't know that I wear that anywhere else, but it seemed like the right time and place to wear it on this program. And so I did. So now what's up next? Well, look what I'm wearing here. I bought this. At, <laughs> I'm such a, a fan, right? I bought this at the NFL Combine last year. They just had it for sale, and it's just a cool. I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll wear that. It looks cool. Um, I'll be going to the Combine again in a few weeks in Indianapolis. There's going to be 12 Georgia players there. Only Alabama has more. Alabama's got 13 players at the Combine. The Dogs have 12. And so we look at the Combine as part of the draft evaluation process. Everybody says, oh, they don't have anything to prove. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. They look at the film in the season. Then they look at the all-star games. Now they look at the combine, height, weight, medical exams, your injuries, their surgeries, a complete background check, and then the testing, the lifting, the running, the jumping, uh, quarterbacks throw, receivers catch, running backs catch. Um, can't wait for that. That's going to be a lot of fun. And then it turns into a bit of a shell game with the draft. Right now, the Chicago Bears have the number one pick and Conventional wisdom is that they would take Jalen Carter. Well, I'm looking at a mock draft tonight uh, from the NFL Network, and I haven't even I haven't even written this up. I'll probably write this up tomorrow. Me or Connor Riley will write this up tomorrow. This is from Chad Reuter. They're now projecting that the Houston Texans will trade up for the number one pick with the Bears and draft Bryce Young. Uh, and then the Colts have two and go with C.J. Stroud. 
And then three, Jalen Carter, the Cardinals, and four, Will Anderson. So those are the same names that you're going to hear bandied about for the top four picks. Whether or not you believe there's going to be a trade or not is kind of up to you. If you scroll down through the draft, and you know that Jalen Carter is going to go in the top five, barring uh, some injury that comes out at the combine or some poor test. I just don't see that happening. I think Jalen is rock solid, top five. You're not going to get past 15 in most drafts without seeing Broderick Jones' name. This particular draft I'm looking at has uh, the New England Patriots, and we all know Bill Belichick likes Georgia players. And they're talking about Isaiah Wynn, a former dog, getting ready to go into free agency and how Broderick would be the perfect replacement. I think Broderick Jones is a future All-Pro. The guy's so athletic. He's so good. He uh, he just kept getting better at Georgia. You know, he didn't give up a sack all year last year. And, and I'm just so impressed with this young guy. So he's a top 15 pick. He'll be the second dog off the board. Again, if chalk holds, nothing crazy happens. You know, I keep scrolling down into the first round. Look, here's a Georgia, Georgia Tech guy, Keon White. You know, I actually talked to Keon at the Senior Bowl about Georgia and Georgia Tech, and that's going to be a story to watch for. I'm just going to tell you, I'm, he's a very impressive young man, very, very impressive. They've got him going 23 uh, overall to the Minnesota Vikings. But I keep scrolling down, and in this particular mock, they've only got those two Georgia players going in the first round. Other mock drafts I've seen have Darnell Washington and Nolan Davis in the first round. So again, it varies from team to team uh, and from uh, and from uh, mock draft to mock draft. But in this particular one, they don't have Nolan Smith going until 36 overall to the LA Rams in the second round. There's Tyreek Stevenson. Remember him? I did a story on him last week for Dog Nation. And Tyreek told me he cried when Georgia won the title. Remember Tyreek transferred after the 2020 season, he transferred back home to Miami and he kind of admitted he got homesick. He was having trouble sleeping up here. The last time you saw him, he was making a, a play that really saved the peach bowl, a pass breakup um, that enabled JT Daniels and Kenny McIntosh to drive down and set up Jack Podlesny for that 53 yard field goal um, that gave Georgia that win over Cincinnati, if you recall that. Um, scrolling back down, here's Darnell Washington, number 39 overall to the Carolina Panthers in the second round. Um, so that's a little bit lower than I've seen for Darnell and and uh, Nolan. These are two guys that the combine is going to be really, really important for. Nolan, of course, had the surgery. Remember he got hurt against Florida and had to undergo the season-ending surgery. They're going to want to see how that's turned out and how far along he is. I'm not sure how much testing he'll be able to do, if any, um, but the fact that he's going to the combine is a good sign. And Darnell, I think, has to be seen in person to be appreciated. I mean, you hear 6'7", 280, but until you're right up on him, I don't think you really realize just how massive he is. And then when you watch him catch passes, his hands are just so uh, strong and, and firm and secure Um I, I'm a big, big proponent of Darnell Washington. When we did our book, uh, the AJC did a book, and I know a lot of you guys bought it. Um, I said, let me do the story on Darnell. I wanted to write about Darnell Washington. I think this guy is headed um, for really big things. And I just liked his attitude this last year. 
when he didn't care, you know, how many passes he got thrown. I think he finished with only 28 catches, but he loved block. And this is a guy that when he first came in, he couldn't block. He he even admitted, he said, I was terrible. And he saw himself on film and he said, it didn't look good. And he really committed himself to being a good teammate. Here's Keely Ringo. You know, Keely's been in a little bit of a free fall. A lot of people after last year thought that Keely Ringo would be a first rounder. And I still think he might surprise you right now. They're projecting him all the way down uh, at the bottom of the second round at 62 to the Eagles. Um, but I, I think that what Keeley's going to, I think that's a bit of overkill. Yes. He got beat sometimes. Um, and yes, he may end up being a safety and not a corner in the NFL, but when they see Keely Ringo and they see a guy that's six, one, six, two, two, ten that runs a high four, three number, all this talk about how he didn't always cover consistently is going to go away and somebody's going to go, we can work with him. We can make him because there's just not many guys, his size and speed uh, and athleticism. And, and he's still learning and he's a great attitude guy. He's a great locker room guy. So I think there's been a little overkill on Keely Ringo falling to the bottom of the second. I, I have a hard time believing he'll get through the, the middle of the second round, especially if he runs that high four three number that I expect him to at the combine, um, I think a lot of heads are going to turn. Scrolling into the third round seems a little low to me for some of the guys that I'm expecting to see. I'm I'm looking for Kenny McIntosh in the third round. I'm looking for Chris Smith in the third round. I see they've got Warren McClendon in the third round, pick number eighty five. And you guys heard me talk about Warren last week and. You know, I, I almost get teary-eyed thinking about Warren being out there last week, less than three weeks removed from being in and a part of that tragic crash. This guy was in the front seat. I went out to the crash site to see it. I wanted to see how far off the road the car traveled before it hit the brick building. It wasn't more than 15 yards. And... For Warren to walk away from that, I'm just, I shake my head. Much less to be playing football at the Senior Bowl less than three weeks later. He's out there in drill work talking about it because he knows every NFL team's going to ask him about it. So day one, he meets with the media, and I'm looking at Warren, and he's holding his head high, and he's speaking clearly. and. I talked with Pod Lesney about it the next day. Pod was roommating, was his roommate, and Jack said he thought it was good for him. And Jack was there for him as a teammate to support him, which was also amazing. But I just thought, man, if I'm an NFL team and I see Warren McClendon out here and I say, that's the guy, that guy was in a crash less than three weeks ago and he's out here competing, I want that guy. I want that guy. He was a freshman All-American. He had 37 starts in a row. All that talk about Amarius Mims and getting rims, getting Mims more snap, and it came at Warren's expense. He never complained. He was a team captain. I can't say enough about Warren McClendon. I, I hope he goes third round to the Chargers. It's a beautiful city. That's where he's projected. Uh, again, this particular draft, I, I'm not seeing – Kenny McIntosh in the third round. I'm not seeing Kenny or uh, Chris Smith in the third round. These are two other guys that I believe belong there. I really do.
Now, we haven't mentioned Stetson yet. And, you know, this is a interesting um, – this is very interesting for me. I've never – obviously, there's never been another college player like Stetson Bennett. So I can't say that I've ever covered one because there hasn't been one in the history of college football. How many former walk-ons do you know that went on to win two national championships and were offensive MVPs in both games? Nobody's done that. Nobody's done that. And you know what? Nobody's ever going to do it again because there's not going to be a walk-on situation like this. Part of it's because of the transfer rule. Part of it's because of how well they're able to scout. But also part of it's because Stetson's got some, you know, gumption about him. He's a tough guy. And, And everything fell just right. And he worked hard and had the clutch gene. And so anyway... Um, right now, Stetson is kind of a mixed bag. Let's be honest about it. Uh, on the one hand, he's celebrated because he's a champion. And on the other hand, there's some people kind of wondering, hey, what's going on, man? You know, you had this deal in Dallas. Um, that wasn't like you. You know, you had that speech where you just seem angry at the world. You know, and DJ Shockley, I talked to him and he said, I thought he was going to thank the fans and thank his teammates and coaches. He's like, no. No, we got angry Stet that day. And um, and then the Dallas thing, like, wait a minute. Like, not only did you not go to the Senior Bowl, but, dude, you picked a bad time. Not that there's ever a good time to be up at 6 in the morning knocking on doors in a, in a different town and getting arrested. But that was – timing was terrible because all the NFL people were, were coming together in the Senior Bowl the same day. And so they're all talking. Well, he's not here. He's over there. It's going, oh, my gosh, this was – couldn't have picked – you know, now the good news is he's been training. You see, he's keeping low profile. We haven't heard from Stetson. Um, probably won't until the combine, and he'll put his best foot forward. And I wrote a story tonight um, where I said, you know, hey, the guy's an underdog again, and yet this is an underdog that Urban Meyer said's probably the most underrated player in college football history. Wow, what a compliment from Urban Meyer. Um, so how is it going to turn out on the one hand? Yes. NFL teams are going to question Stetson's character and, you know, what were you doing out? And well, you know, what was that speech all about? And what's this deal with you and Munkin not getting along? Okay. But on the other, they know what they saw on the field. They saw a guy that, you know, played not great for three quarters against Alabama in the championship game last year. And in the fourth quarter through two touchdown passes, they saw a guy this year that said, He thought he played bad football for 30 minutes. And then he threw for almost 200 yards in the fourth quarter against Ohio state. And then he went out and scored six touchdowns against TCU. So yeah, they've seen kind of a mixed bag too, but they've seen the upside. They've seen the upside and think, you know what? We can work with this kid. We're going to put him in a good environment and surround him with professionals and in NFL, there's no classes to worry about. And, and you know, Stetson, that was never like his top thing. I mean, I think George announced on the scoreboard at the championship game that he was he's, he's expected to graduate with his bachelor's degree in the spring. You know, really, who cares? We, we know that that wasn't a priority for him. No secret. It's not a priority for a lot of these guys. Let's just be honest. That's what we do on the show. We're just honest about it. You know, so... Maybe in a professional environment, you know, it's perfect. And then, yeah, some people are going to use his size against him. But I always say, look, you know, we're seeing more spread now in the NFL than ever. We're seeing more mobile quarterbacks. You know, look at Bryce Young. He's projected to be number one. 
he's not that much bigger than Stetson, if at all. I'll be interested to see how they measure up at the combine. So you're seeing more teams run spread. You're seeing more teams with mobile quarterbacks. I expect Stetson to run a low 4-4 number or mid 4-4 number. I, I think he improved his his mechanics and his footwork. And um, I think he's going to have a good combine. I really do. Now, will he be drafted? I don't know. Um, I don't know that it really matters, though. You know, to make a, a practice squad or to be the third quarterback, you don't have to be. I know this. I know his agent is the same person that represents Patrick Mahomes and Jalen Hurts. And I think they have a pretty good eye for quarterbacks. So uh, I think you should be optimistic about Stetson. I think it's fair um, to have questions. Um, I think it's fair to be excited about his talents and what he accomplished. It's historical. And I think it's fair to be disappointed, you know, with some of the ways he's acted since winning the championship. That's why I said it's a mixed bag. But, I mean, when you get right down to it, isn't everybody a mixed bag? I mean, hasn't everybody had highs and lows at different points? The difference is because he's Stetson Bennett, he's under a microscope. And you can say that's not fair, but that's how it is. You know, championship quarterbacks get watched much closer and then never will change. He'll always be Stetson Bennett. And there'll always be a higher degree of scrutiny for him, Jake Fromm, DJ Shockley, Aaron Murray, Matthew Stafford, Eric Zire. When you're a Georgia quarterback, you're like a, a state ambassador, whether you like it or not. Everybody knows your name. And with Stetson, with two national titles, that's especially true. So I kind of looked at it like, you know, here's a small town kid with all this attention, all this success, hitting it, hitting him so hard and so fast. And there's no, there's no book for this. There's no manual for this. So I guess maybe I'm a little more forgiving than some people in the sense of not going to judge, not going to write off, think there's room for a comeback because um, I've seen him do it before. Now, all that said, I didn't necessarily think he was the best quarterback in the country last year or even the best quarterback in the SEC or the second best quarterback in the SEC. I'll tell you that straight up. But he was clutch and he was champion. And he was at his best when Georgia needed to be at his best. And he's resilient and he's tough. He took a lot of hits. You know, Bryce Young missed a couple games at Alabama, at least one, right? Stetson didn't miss any games. I think he played through his shoulder. I think he's a tough kid. I think that toughness stands for something, that he was able to get through, what, 30, 31 starts? He got hit some of those times, man, and hit hard. So attributes are there. Um I don't know about NFL upside or how he's going to read defenses. That's what I can't answer. Munkin's system was so doggone good um, that we never really, you know, Stetson, I don't know that he ever really had to be, you know, uh, the playmaker Bryce Young was. In fact, it was almost like, hey, just make the right reads, you know, and use your arm talent to make the throws. He scrambled. He extended some plays. Um, so that's why I said it's a mixed bag. And, and I can't wait to see how the story comes out. I've covered the whole story. It's been exciting to write about Stetson and interview him. I've written a lot about his NIL deals when, you know, he was the milkman. And I did that story. And I wrote the story about him with the Georgia peanut farmers. Uh, I believe I did the story on Zaxby's with Stetson. I've done a lot of stories on Stetson Bennett, um, really positive stories. 
And then the tough stories, you know, when Kirby would be critical, like after the Florida game and in 2021 or after this year's game, when Kirby said after the house state game, you have to play better, you know, to win a championship. Um, and I've had to write those things. Um, and then I've written the, the, the hero stories and now it's just kind of like, here we are on this journey and what's coming next in Indianapolis. And we're going to be talking about it every week. We're going to be talking about it every week leading up to the combine uh, because Stetson's a newsmaker. Just like we're going to talk about Kenny. We're going to talk about Broderick Jones. We're going to talk about Chris Smith. And then we're going to be talking about the dogs in spring football, middle of March. Can you believe it? What is the start date? Like March 16th or 17th for spring ball. I think the spring game is April 21st. It's not that far off. It's all coming at once. And then the draft is like the end of the month. And then we've got our, like our dog nation cruise is right before the draft. And I don't know, some of you may have signed up for that. We, uh, we had like a call tonight about it. It was so cool talking about what this cruise is going to be like, um, you know, with, with Jeff and, and myself and, and Brandon Adams and, and our manager, BJ, I think there's a couple other dog nation people are going to be on. It's going to be really a lot of fun. Um, so there's just so much going on. It's an exciting time. Uh, hey, even the basketball team. How about that win over Kentucky? You know, that was the first time the Georgia won consecutive games at home over Kentucky since Hugh Durham was head coach. And that was 89 and 90. Now, these wins were two years apart, but they were the last two times they played him at home. And Hugh Durham was actually at the game. The 1983 Final Four team was being honored, and uh, that was a big win. It's not the typical Kentucky. They're not in the top 25, and this game kind of knocked Kentucky right now out of the projection tournament. Now, Kentucky can get back in. As for Georgia, you know, their RPI is like 134. It's not real good. I think South Carolina is the only one worse, uh, but they're like a respectable 5-7 and seven in the league. They got a very winnable game with LSU tomorrow night. Um, I think if Mike White wins one more game, I think if he beats LSU, he'll assure himself that he won't have a losing season. Mike's in his 12th year. He's never had a losing season anywhere. Um, and I think he'll continue that streak. I think they'll beat LSU. And then they got some tough games left, really tough games. I know Florida and Arkansas are on the schedule. Um, I, I don't really know how they're going to finish up. It might be a stretch to think they could make the NIT, but you never know. Um, Terry Roberts, this transfer from Bradley's Dynamite, Cario Aquendo, uh, Super Cario, as we call him, and uh, Braylon Bridges, you know, the 6'11 kid out of Atlanta, man, he's really balling. He had a big night against the Cats. So we'll see how Mike White finishes it off. And, and uh, you know, I'll be keeping up with Georgia softball and baseball, getting you all some previews here pretty soon. Georgia softball already underway. They swept through Central Florida uh, dominated everybody. I think baseball starts end of this week. So a lot of really cool things going on. If you want to hit me up, follow me on Twitter at Mike Griffith 32, or you can send me an email. Uh, we can talk that way. I'm going to take a look here. It's hard for me to see comments right now uh, with this particular format. So I'll check this after the show. Um, but I just want to thank everybody for joining me. Uh, remember dog nation daily. will be back tomorrow with Brandon Adams. And then we have Jeff Centel Wednesday night. And, of course, you guys know Connor does such a good job. He usually comes to you on Sunday nights, and uh, he does a lot of video throughout the week. So you get to see and hear Connor uh, every day uh, with the Georgia Bulldogs as well. So I want to thank my producer, Michael Carvel. I want to thank all of you for joining me. Everybody, have a great week and have a great night.